five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. on the internet. was um, The Outer Limits. Pretty interesting dialogue or monologue, actually. No dialogue there. Um, that is from a, an episode called Obit, O-B-I-T. I'm going to play another clip from that later uh, in the show because it gives you some background as to what Obit is and what he's talking about, which is actually incredibly prescient, right? So what he's really referring to is the internet. And this is in 1963. So that machine that you saw with the uh, kind of the alien who was essentially channeling his thoughts into the scientist, well, that is Obit. And Obit is a, a technology that allows excuse me, the user to tune in to any human signal and see what they're, not only see what they're doing, but know what they're thinking. And this is a, a, a project that was started by, again, this is all in the Outer Limits, a project that was started by the, the DOD, like Department of Defense. And um, it's a very prescient, prophetic episode of the other, which has a few, by the way, 
the outer, I've been I've been kind of going through the Outer Limits back catalog. It's hard to find a lot of the shows on YouTube. There are a few. There are a couple of uh, full episodes. One of the best ones, which is a two-part series called The Inheritors, I might talk about at some point in time. The difference between this episode and The Inheritors is that in The Inheritors, there's an alien presence. Like there's almost always an alien presence in The Outer Limits. It's sort of this launching pad for, for Star Trek because a lot of the people that are on Star Trek are in episodes of The Outer Limits. So the ideas, some of the cast, and even there's a couple of, uh, of monsters in The Outer Limits that were reused on Star Trek. And Star Trek would make its debut, I believe, in 1966. And the last Outer Limits show was like 1963. It only lasted two seasons because uh, ABC fucked up the time slot. But if you go back and... I've been trying to find these shows and some of them are just incredibly bang on, especially the inheritors and Obit. And then the one that's always supposedly the, the, the best of the uh, outer limits episodes is the man with the glass hand. And that's uh, with Robert Culp. And that's, again, it's considered a, a total classic. Um, but I think I think Obit is probably pretty good, and the Inheritors is right up. Oh, look who's here! We got a rosy sighting this morning. How about that? Wow! Look who's here! Look who's feeling it! Yeah, rosy girl. Yeah, you haven't done this in a while, have you? So, as you know, Rosie has not been feeling well, and uh, no, you're feeling better though today, aren't you? But she's been having a miraculous comeback. She's like the Detroit Tigers in the 1968 World Series. Down three games of nothing by the St. Louis Cardinals to the St. Louis Cardinals. We do have Cardinals out here too. She does look a little bit like a tiger, although Jasper resembles more of a tiger. So Rosie's gonna hang out and join us today. Well, thanks for being here, Rosie. Wow, she even had the energy to jump. Kind of amazing, by the way, what's happening. We've been running the Rife machine on her, probably about maybe three programs a day. And um, just remarkable, R remarkable. And I can even feel that maybe, and I'm, and I'm, I'm kind of hoping and visualizing that the tumor in her lungs is getting smaller. And wouldn't that just be an amazing story, an amazing miracle? So for everybody who's, you know, um, sent good thoughts and wishes for Rosie, thank you for doing that. And I'm sure it's actually helped as well. Right. So when we combine our energy together, we are better. We are better together in the best way. So how is everybody? It's 420. It is, uh, it is that day, you know, the day where everybody around the world fires up. <laughs> everybody gets high on 420. It's also the day that's connected to Molex. Day of sacrifice. And we'll look a little bit at 419 and 420. There's almost always something intense and incendiary that's associated with this day. Just by going through the Wikipedia, you'll, you'll be able to see some of the some of the events that are associated with 420, which is the sacrifice to Molech. You can see the picture that I have on the thumbnail or on the graphic for today's show. And they sacrifice children. They sacrifice children to the 
outstretched arms of Molech, their, their desert god, so that they could be spared the misfortune of Molech wreaking havoc upon their civilization. Isn't that right? And of course, the, uh, the dark viziers of Molech, they would be the ones that would be somehow receiving some form of benefit, right? Just like the dark vizier of Obit, who is theoretically getting all the instructions for that machine. You know, it's really interesting in that, in that uh, monologue. I, I believe that was a Harlan Ellison episode. I think Harlan Ellison penned that one. I know he also, so Harlan Ellison wrote a, a, uh, an episode about these two soldiers who are having a war in the future and there's this electrical storm and then they're, they're sent back into time. And it's almost a page for page rendition of the Terminator. And uh, Harlan Ellison, once the Terminator came out, Harlan Ellison sued James Cameron and was able to prove to a jury, which is not easy by the way, that James Cameron did indeed take his ideas from the, the Outer Limits episode and then turn it into the Terminator, which launched the very lucrative and very influential Terminator series. So the Outer Limits has not only a kind of a thumbprint on the culture of its time, but on the culture moving forward, right? It seeds Star Trek and creates the, the basis and the foundation of the Terminator. So we're gonna get into some 420 stuff got a lot to cover today. We're, we're in that, that uh, string of planets in Pisces, the, the great stellium in Pisces. So we have Jup Neptune, Jupiter. I think Jupiter's out in front now. I actually have it up on the chart. Let's just pull up here. Where are we? It's right here through the chart at the moment. There it is. We'll share screen. There we go. Yeah. Jupiter, Neptune, Venus, Mars, all in Pisces, right there, right? Giant luminaries. And it's kind of interesting because you could, so in a weird way, you can sort of feel, like I can feel into what's going on with this stellium and, and a lot of it has to do with Elon Musk because Elon Musk is emerging during this time as this savior of free speech. Jason Whitlock dedicated almost an entire show to Elon Musk. Now he's done this now for about three straight times, like three straight shows. Now, I don't know if Jason is kind of riding the wave of the news cycle and trying to get eyeballs uh, and connect it back to some of his own talking points. But it's interesting because he he's given an inordinate amount of screen time to this whole idea that Elon Musk can save free speech in this country. I don't think Elon Musk really cares about free speech. If he does, it's only through some form of obscure Aquarian curiosity. I don't really feel like he's a true believer in free speech that's not my sense. And we've already looked at the track record of Elon Musk. He hasn't done anything, 
right? So if he buys Twitter, there are a lot of people that are speculating, oh, he'll make all these innovative changes to Twitter. He'll do all these things to Twitter. He'll, he'll expose the algorithm. And not only that, but he'll create some other like interesting form of Twitter commerce, link it up to one of the uh, digital assets and voila, you know, we've got this whole new system. He won't do any of it. He'll hire somebody and maybe they'll do it. He won't. And so now he's in this, uh, it's all about, oh, the poison pill, the poison pill. Twitter, and I talked about the poison pill, what Twitter can do. And Twitter can undersell the stock price. And I was watching Jason last night. He had Papa John Schnatter from Papa John's Pizza, who really was the first victim of cancel culture. Because they went after him, right? They went after him because they wanted they wanted him out of the company. His values are antithetical to, you know, the the woke, you know, neo Marxist policies that are being adopted all throughout the government and corporate America. So, long story short, with Papa John Schnatter, who is a Ball State graduate, same as Jason Whitlock, is that. He had a meeting. There was a meeting, and they had been trying to find things on him to take him out of the company. And it was in a meeting, and there was a recording. Somebody recorded this, and they were actually able to get the recording um, later on. They couldn't get it during the trial, but he was able to get it later on, and, and it exonerated him. But essentially what he said is he, he talked about Harlan Sanders, who's Colonel Sanders. And he talked about how he used to use the dreaded N-word because he was from the South. And he was just telling these people in this board meeting, like how Colonel Sanders comported himself. The problem is, is that he used the wrong word, right? Look at that. We got Pisces on the ascendant now. Just changed. So we have Jupiter in Pisces on the Ascendant, right here in the unknown place. Oh, it should be, uh, should be Austin. It just changed on us, that's weird. Deus Ex Machina. So anyway, um, he was on the show. And of course, Jason is bringing it back to Elon Musk, right? Like, you know, what should Elon Musk do? How is it like your situation when you know, you experienced a hostile takeover with the board of Papa John's. Papa John is actually a really smart guy. He's somebody you could tell he's kind of a, yeah, not like you. He's kind of an introvert, but he knows a lot. And he made some critical errors uh, when he was the CEO of his company. And essentially, he had signed a clause when he started, uh, when, when they went public. And it's, it's called, like, I think it's called the Wolfpack Clause or something like that. And this is not uncommon, by the way, when you, when you have a, a public company. Although that, apparently this does not exist in Twitter. So Papa John could not go into the, uh, the shareholders of his company and buy their shares. 
so that he could stave off a hostile takeover. And he, he had 30% of the company. So could he have gotten 21% more and told everybody to go fuck off? Maybe that's possible, but he couldn't do that. So he talked about that. It was, it was interesting, but again, Jason is like just fixated on this Elon Musk thing. And the reason I'm talking about Elon Musk is because we have this Jupiter, Neptune, Venus and Mars conjunction. Well, it's a stellium in these planets, right? And it's going on right now. So we're looking for saviors through this cycle, right? This um, To me, this is almost like the cycle of the Antichrist, that, that the Antichrist is the idea of the Antichrist, the idea of a savior is part of this astrological current right now. And you can just see it. People want Elon Musk to be the person that can liberate them from their chains on Twitter, right? That's what they want. That's what they're really hoping for because people are still in the savior mode. They're still looking for somebody to come in and solve all their problems whether it's Elon Musk or Donald Trump or, uh, you know, fill in the, fill in the savior blank. Right. So that's what, that's what people are, are, are hooked into right now because the situation has become so dire and the individual has had very, has had very little opportunity. Like they're eliminating this whole idea that the individual can make a difference. And so what they're doing is they're, they're creating this structure around group identity, which isn't necessarily bad. I'm not, I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater because we're going to have to pull together. That's a given, but it's going to be a, a dance. I'm going to call it a synergy, right? It's synergy, synergy, synergy and anarchy. I'm going to call it synergy. And I think that's actually a word, but that's, that's what we're, that's what we're looking for here. And who was I? Oh, yeah. So Tom sent me this video yesterday. It's actually a really good video. I don't have it queued up. I think it's like an eight-hour stream, and it's a guy who was a whistleblower. Uh, Grand Theft World, I believe, is the name of the podcast. And I was really impressed with this podcast because these guys come out of tech. Um, the guy who has the podcast, maybe Tom could put the link in chat, but the guy who has a podcast was part of a company that was connected to Dick Cheney and he found stuff inside the company and he decided to blow the whistle on them because it was dirty. Imagine that. And he has to, uh, he has to defend himself in the court of law. So he goes pro se and he learns a lot. So one of the things that was interesting, there are two things that I gleaned from that interview. One of the things I'm going to touch on today is that, um, is that the guy who has that podcast, again, I think it's called Grand Theft World. I'd never heard of him before, by the way, but it's a, it seemed like a pretty good podcast, uh, high quality. So he talked about how we have to, and I've said this before, that we have to have an organizing principle, right? There, we have to have something that binds us together in a way that's important that gives us a prime directive, if you will, to make this world um, much closer to, you know, the Garden of Eden. Take it off. All right, see you later. Wow, she jumped off. 
much closer to the Garden of Eden, right? Even though everything will always be imperfect because it's that's how it's supposed to be in this world. It's just about degrees of imperfection. And right now we're dealing with very high imperfection. So he talks about this and I agree with him because we need to have something like that. And what that thing is, you know, there's, you know, another thing we were talking about yesterday, and I promise I'm going to get into some of this other stuff because it actually ties in, it ties into the second point of that uh, podcast or that stream. So we need to have this organizing principle, but it cannot. So one of the things that they want to do is they want to, they want to use Christianity to be this organizing principle. And again, I don't have a problem with Christianity per se. My, my issue, like Christians are fine. Like, you know, they're, they're good people. I remember I told the story before I got picked up in the middle of bumfuck nowhere, New Mexico one night when I had a flat and I got picked up by a father and the son. They took me to the nearest town. The guy knew, knew a guy in town on a Sunday evening, probably around five o'clock, six o'clock on a Sunday evening maybe a little bit later, about six o'clock. And he goes in and uh, makes a call. Guy gets up, gets out of his house, comes down. And he sells me a tire, right? Takes me all the way back to my car. I change the tire on the way back to the car. I get the, I get the Jesus lecture and I'm like, okay, well, great. You know, I'm, I'm down with that guy. Right. I like it. He's great. Everything stands for I'm with, but that's, <laughs> That was the, that was the, that was the, you know, in some ways they were doing God's work, right? Well, they were doing God's work because they helped me out. But then of course they have to do the other part of God's work, which is they have to testify and try to convert me. I don't blame them. Why not? That's what they're here to do, right? A lot of people get upset. Like, well, why the hell are you telling that Christianity to me? Well, that's who they are. They're Christians. That's what they're here to do, right? That's part, that's part of his, part of their, 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 um, their religious resume, whatever. Yeah, fine. But here's my issue now. I, I see, like, the, Robert David Steele started this with his tour, right, with his buses and raps. And, and essentially what he was doing is that he was re, reigniting and recatalyzing the, 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 the um, revival circuit, right? There, so back in the day... And you would have to go back to the Second Great Awakening, uh, which took place here in this country. It also took place in England or Europe as well. So these Great Awakenings are these religious sort of turning points. And the first Great Awakening happens with Martin Luther. And then they redefine the church. The Second Great Awakening, and because of the fact that they've redefined the church, you have these break-off sects of Christianity. And it's a very, so at that point, Christianity becomes very different than Catholicism. They really, there's this fork in the road and they just go like this, right? And part of the second great awakening was the rebaptism. Like you can be baptized at birth, but you can also have a rebaptism and you can be reborn. So that all comes through the second great awakening. And that's around what, um, Mid eighteen mid eighteen hundreds, I think. No, early eighteen hundreds, probably around 18, 1820, right around there. Maybe even the late seventeen hundreds. I'd have to look at it. I'm not going to do it now. So, what was going on during that time is that's when the whole revival concept was born. Then they would have these 
you know, big ecstatic religious experiences, mostly on the East Coast, right? Because that's where the population was. I hadn't really advanced westward and discovered all of these uh, forgotten cities. By the way, Michelle Gibson will be on the show on Friday. So all you Michelle Gibson lovers and people that have requested that she be on the show, I have listened to your requests. You see, I do listen to you. And Michelle does great research with uh, Tartaria. I think she's one of the best, actually. I would have to say, you know, I've got my favorites. John is right up there. I think John is my favorite because I just, I just dig John. He's just such a unique character. And then Martin is unique too, in a different kind of way. And Martin does great research. I mean, you know, they're kind of like one, two, but I, just because I like John's kind of alternative rock, laconic style, like John is alt rock. You know what I mean? He's John, John is, John is Nirvana. He's kind of in that Nirvana zone. Seattle. John's got that Seattle vibe in a good way. But Martin is brilliant. Michelle is brilliant. Michelle and Martin are really kind of neck and neck on the research side of things. And, um, and then, of course, you have autodidactic, whom I like. But I think, I think Martin and Michelle are probably the two best researchers with Tartaria. John is a really good researcher, too. But the thing that sets John apart is that John is not afraid to be John and allow his personality to bleed through his broadcast, which I think is, which it, it, it gives him that kind of unique, personal, and at times really vulnerable perspective. And I totally applaud that. Anyway, Michelle will be on the show. And then who is, um, God, I, was, I, I wanna call him Richard Spencer and I apologize, but um, we're going to have another guest who's going to talk about the people with the giant heads, the hydrocephalic cone heads. He'll be in the first hour. Michelle will be in the second hour. So we're really going kind of off the grid here on Friday's show. I'm really looking forward to it. We need a little off the grid energy. By the way, first day of Taurus, for you Taurus people out there, happy solar returns, zero degrees Taurus. Let me get into Chatlandia, and then when I come back, I'm going to talk about the show's new sponsor. We have a sponsor now. Besides me and robertphoenix.com, which sponsors the show every day, uh, we have a sponsor with my good friend Christopher Lynch and his company, True Hemp Science, which I'll talk about in a second. Before I do that, let me check in with you see what's happening with you. By the way, the podcast is really taking off. Being on Russ's, um, or having Russ on the show, and then converting that show into a podcast on 15 Minutes of Flame, Russ linked to it. I think I might have gotten about 20 subscribers out of it. And uh, hopefully you new people are enjoying the podcast experience. You can always drop by here. 15 Minutes of Flame, that's uh, 9-11, Monday through Thursday, for now, Central Standard Time. All right, who do we have here? We got Empath, we got my man TJ, what's going on, Tom? Ryan, the introspective woodworker. There's Michelle, Kentucky woman, a.k.a. kick-ass combat mom. Queen Lisa's in the house. Hello, Lisa. Sony, JJ. 
saying that. Um, let's see who else we have here. CC Jones, what's going on, Fran? Good to see you. Wendy says, the beautiful Wendy says, every morning, hello, beautiful people. How'd you like to have somebody wake up to you every day and say, hello, beautiful person. How are you today? Be kind of cool, right? Uh, let's see, who else do we have here? Da, 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 da. It's just like the Waltons in here. That's funny. It is, right? Instead of uh, night, Jim Bob, it's good morning. I love it. It's great. Mark Matheny, what's going on, Double M? Mr. 29 Degrees Pisces. Hope you're digging life on the farm. Green Acres lifestyle. C Pines is here. Kelly B, happy hemp day for those who participate. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good day for me to kick to kick off this partnership with THS. I, you know, sometimes I, I do things and I, I don't know what the motivation, I mean, I've been talking to Chris for a long time and we, I, I actually had his assets for about two weeks now and I just needed to sit down and put something together. And I did it yesterday and I was like, oh yeah, today's 420. What a great day to launch this, this partnership. It's auspicious. Zero Taurus. Equicentric, what's going Equa? Hucklebuck411, Obit, one of my favorite Outer Limits episodes. Obit is so fucking prescient. They're talking about the internet. They are talking about the internet. And then some. Kathy Kramer. Hi, Kathy. Good to see you. Uh, I love that. Yeah. The Outer Limits, two seasons and bang, it was over. Rosie the Miracle Cat, right? Star Trek. I was, whenever Star Trek was on as a kid, I was glued to Star Trek. I loved it. Let's see. Who else do we have here? Puff, puff, pass. That's funny, Fran. Miracles happen every day. Man, Rosie, I, I'm telling you, I've never seen her do this. Well, not in a long time. I have seen her do it. But she, I, Rosie was at death's fucking door. It's amazing. All right. Rocky. Rocky's in the house. Hi, Rocky. Let's see. Beth Berry. Double B's here. Tom, you're the man. We're going to talk a little bit about Chris. Chris will be on the show tomorrow, too. Uh, took today off for reasons. Just woke up. Morning all. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised it's not a national holiday. I saw on Twitter, order some CBD for my dogs. Yeah, Chris has CBD products for his dogs and cats, by the way. Uh, let's see, who else do we have? Scrubbies. And Scrubbies is name checking here. Love it. I could have used CBD yesterday. I had a gut attack. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Chris's products here in just a second. Uh, let's see. I learned, learned some stuff about Elon from that video. Yeah. Scrubbies is, uh, Tamara, don't you make dream catchers? I think Tamara makes dream catchers. Tamara makes a lot of things. I think dream catchers is part of her, uh, part of her repertoire. Anybody else here that I need to greet? There's Michelle. I'm, not, I'm sorry, Christine. What's going on, Christine? Jay Kaiser. The Gucci to Godis. The Godis. 
can't wait to have her on the show talk about her culture changing book that's on the way. Let's see who else do we have. Uh, what are we talking about? So Ryan just uses CBD. This is funny. Queen Lisa, I tried gummies and they shut me up, which is not a bad thing. Zach Voorhees. Thanks, Tom. Zach Voorhees, whom I had heard of, by the way. Uh, let's see. So there's a lot of 420 chatter going on in chat right now. I am not a 420 guy. Let's see who else do we have. Are we all in here? You or the walrus just showed up. Happy belated bicycle day. Oh, that's um, that's the day that LSD was discovered. Right? Albert Hoffman. DJMC checking in. Good to see you, Michael. Hope all is well in uh, Babylon by the Bay. Sodom and Gomorrah by the Bay. Derek, welcome Derek to the uh, chat. Arlene Vega, all right. We got a great, great chat room here. Let's talk a little bit about Chris's uh, stuff. So I'm just gonna go into this post. And a little bit of screen share. And uh, I'm gonna tell you why Chris is relevant and why this product is so good. So I've known Chris, I think since maybe 2015. So I've known him for about six years and then we've actually hung out and he lives in Austin and he's somebody that was um, really big into the, he was, he was a finance guy. He was a finance numbers investment guy and he got out of that world and he, went headfirst into health and alternative health. And eventually through his journey with alternative health, he runs into CBD and develops a relationship with somebody here in Texas who is actually growing the hemp on their property. Now this is, you know, before they passed these hemp laws. And at that time, it was a big deal. Like you, if you were growing hemp, in Texas, you didn't want to get caught because you would go to jail. And even selling CBD in a store could, you know, land you in hot water. And I remember not long after I moved here to Fredericksburg, the one place in town that had CBD, this health food store, got shut down. And the reason it got shut down is because a woman had bought some CBD from the store, had it in her car, was visible to the person that pulled them over, they saw the CBD, they asked her where she got it. They went to the store and they pulled everything. They pulled all their fucking product. Now remember, this is around, I moved here in 2018. So a mere four years ago. Now you can get CBD, I think in HEB. CBD and HEB, you get CBD at, at the 7-Eleven. Like, oh, how times have changed, right? So I got to know Chris first as a client and and, you know, helping him out and just trying to help. He was, he was making a transition. And now he's fully into this world. And so I started to, you know, have some of the CB, CBD products. I don't know, what, four years ago, maybe? Four or five years ago, he used to send me things. And then when I had the first event here in Austin, 
um, Chris showed up and he did like a CBD social and, you know, got Topo Chico and he added some CBD to the Topo Chico. It was actually pretty good. Right. And he, you know, he didn't, he didn't get paid for it. He didn't ask for anything. Of course, maybe he'd sell some product and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. So it's like, this is a good dude. And I know for a fact that, that people order his CBD in Austin and he'll actually drop it off at their house. Okay. And so first of all, he's an entrepreneur, he's an American and you can be an entrepreneur, not be an American, but they're really trying to shut this type of business down in the United States. Right. And he's in Texas and it's all locally sourced, meaning Texas sourced, Texas crafted and Texas manufactured. And he sent me some more stuff about, I don't know, maybe two months ago. And he sent me uh, some nighttime gummies and some, uh, some other CBD. And the nighttime gummies were, were the bomb. Just absolutely did the trick, right? So if you get CBD here, right? There's the link. And he's got a bunch of options. If you spend over $100, you get $20 worth of product. So just include it in the order. And what we're going to talk about tomorrow with Chris, he'll be on for about a half an hour, is that he's actually been a victim of cancel culture. So there's a, there's a, there's, he's got a CBD competitor in Austin. And Chris has had a, I think about a two or three year relationship with Crow triple seven and Crow triple seven, um, you know, offers, a C, C, offers Chris a CBD for sale uh, through his website and his show. And he does really well. So this competitor labeled Chris a fascist and an anti-Semite and went on a cancel culture campaign because he was doing business with Crow triple seven, Crow triple seven. And um, it's mind-blowing, right? It's absolutely mind-blowing. So this is another one of the reasons why I think it's important to support him. He's got a good company. He's trying to keep it going. It's hard to find work and people that can't work. It's been a real steep climb to find people that will actually show up for a job. And we'll talk about that tomorrow. Um, and he's got people from an ideological perspective that don't agree with this kind of free market ideas, right? So we, honestly, we want to support these people. So it's a good product. He's a good dude. It's a good company, right? You get a good discount. And I think those are all really great motivating factors. And I use it. I use those CBD nighttime gummies. Work like a charm. Okay. So I wanted to get into something. And we'll go, we'll go down the Molech rabbit hole because we have about a little less than an hour on the show. So we have plenty of time. We've packed in a lot of information already. So in that interview with Zach Voorhees, one of the things that Zach Voorhees talked about were the programmers at Google. I think um, the co-host of the show was asking him about 
like what was the culture like at Google? And he basically, he basically said, well, there's a breakdown between like libertarian types. And you'll find libertarian types inside of the tech world. And they tend to be more into autonomy, anonymity, right? Experiential. That's kind of part of the scene. Like the people that started the internet on the West Coast, John Perry Barlow, um, the EFF, the first online community called The Well. That's where they came out of. They were kind of anarchic, uh, free spirit, libertarians. So that spirit is embedded in that world. Although it seems to be being consumed by the much more hardcore progressive liberal agenda, which really in 20, in 2016, after Trump got elected, just put the foot down. So this is not going to happen anymore, right? We are going to change how people interact with content and not allow this dialogue to go on or not, not allow the internet to promote a person or to promote ideas that we deem to be fascistic, dictatorial, tyrannical. And this gets back into this whole idea uh, that if you're a communist, a Marxist, a socialist, right? But mainly a Marxist and a communist, the biggest enemy in the world is corporate fascism. But believe it or not, this, I mean, you go back and you look at like the, 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 the propaganda in the speeches that Lenin would give and that Marx would give, I'm sorry, uh, Lenin and Stalin would give, you know, what, what would they talk about? Well, they talk about capitalism as a scourge and they would demonize capitalism and they would loud the uh, potential of the collective, right? And that the collective and the people would smash capitalism and it would be a, a more fair, more just, more egalitarian system. So there was that, right? And embedded in capitalism was the corporate structure. But the dirty little secret with Lenin and Stalin, but really big time Stalin, was all the help he got from American companies. So all the things that they would, you know, bitch and shout and burn and and trash, right? They'd burn capitalism as an effigy. They were having a backdoor relationship with capitalism. Like capitalism and and the and the corporate entities, the globalists, the internationalists were the backdoor man, right? Like the backdoor lover for Stalin and Lenin and their whole system. It's a dirty little secret, but it's true. And they wouldn't have been able to stay alive, manufacture, have food, if it was for, for capitalism, right? So that's their that's one of their enemies. The other enemy is fascism, because the socialists and the communists were brought face to face in Europe with World War II. And for a lot of young people in England, World War II was fucking shocking, right? Like if you were a kid in England in World War II and you had to go into a bomb shelter, it just completely fucked with your world. Or you had a, a father or an uncle you know, or, or a big brother that went off to go fight in the war, it fucked with your world. 
So these kids would have been born, let's say you're around, uh, I don't know, nine years old, and we'll take kind of the, the sweet spot of the war, 1942. So they would have been born uh, right around, what, uh, 1933. Now, those kids would grow up to be traumatized, and they would, they would never want another war again. So what they did is they said, well, socialism is the answer. Communism is the answer. We do that. We, we support that system. We'll defeat the fascists and we'll never have another war because that's one of the things that the communists would always crow about. Like, well, we're anti-war. Not really. It just sounded good, right? If they had the whole world under their thumb, there would be no wars. And that was one of the organizing principles of communism. If the entire world was communist, then we wouldn't have any wars. There wouldn't be any competing systems that we'd have to worry about. It'd probably be one of the worst fucking things to ever happen. And I'm not here to, to, you know, stand up for crony capitalism, globalism, internationalism, which is the, the, the right hand to communism's left hand, okay? That said, people like Chris and others who are independent, who are small business owners, who are doing their best to eke out just a little spot on the cliff face of the economic system, I'm 110% in support of, 110%. So you can see this with the communists, like that's their thing, right? They're gonna go up and go after the fascists. And that's what happened with what went down in 2016. And you could go back and watch that that video that Google put out, it was the company meeting, and they're all crying, right? And uh, you know, the Indian dude from Google basically says, we're never going to let this happen again because they thought that Trump is this fascist, which is weird. I could see why, because, you know, he just checks a bunch of boxes. But if you really look at Trump, he's like, not, he's not a fascist. Like Trump, in a lot of ways, is a better connected version of Eric Adams. He's a better connected version of Eric. Eric Adams has more in common with Trump than I think people understand, especially with the real estate background. And that's not to say that there can't be some redeeming qualities around Trump. And I think, I think there can be. His ability to connect with the everyday person was something we hadn't seen in a president for a very long time. Maybe since Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter, when he came on the scene, had that ability to just be plain spoken. Like, oh, God, we got to elect this guy. Look at him. He's, he's polite. He's plain spoken. He cares about the environment. He's anti-nuclear weapons. He wasn't slick. Jimmy Carter was not slick. Bill Clinton was slick. And for whatever reason, I think it was Bill Clinton was the boomer vote. It was like, it, it, it was, you know, Bill Clinton was the boomer's wet dream. Here's our guy. Look at him. He's one of us. He plays the saxophone. He's so cool. Don't you want to party? Don't you want to party with Bill Clinton? One time my grandmother, my grandmother was really into Bill Clinton. Kind of annoyed me a little bit, but I never really had any harsh words for my grandmother because she treated me really well. There was this one time I was, I was staying with her when I started my dot-com job because I couldn't find a fucking place to live. So she would go on and on about Bill Clinton. And one night I'd had, a, I think I'd had a bottle of wine or something. 
And I, I was feeling a little playful. And I said, well, you know, Graham, let me ask you a question. You were a few years younger. We know Bill Clinton likes to have sex. Would you have had sex with Bill Clinton? She started laughing. She's a Taurus. She started laughing. And she admitted it. She said, yeah, I would have. So that was, that was funny, right? That was, that was a funny moment. But that's, he was the boomer's wet dream. Just like Obama was, what a letdown. He, Obama was supposed to be this icon of my generation. Again, Obama theoretically born in 1961, right? What a letdown. So we have, we have one shot at somebody from my generation, and then we're back to the boomers. You know, we're back to Trump, or we're back to Joe Biden. That didn't last long, did it? Anyway, um, so one of the things that Google did is they reflexively acted against the fascistic threat. And again, this is at the center of Stalinism and communism. It is the one of the bedrock beliefs besides the economic theory stuff. One of the bedrock beliefs is that this system is the watchdog for the people against fascism. That's how Antifa was able to gain traction, right? Antifa saw itself as being anti-fascist. The word, there's the word in there, it's anti-fascist. So they were, they were actually responding to what they believed was fascism. And they had been programmed through the higher institution of learning, right? College campuses who were indoctrinating everybody across the board into critical theory. Critical theory swept through the university system like a forest fire. So that was already embedded in them, aside from their technical skills. So they rebelled against what they believed to be the threat of fascism. And everything that is outside of their agreed upon and defined belief set is fascistic. This is, this is how reality is determined now. If you're not in support of Ukraine, if you don't believe that the shot works, if you won't wear a mask, if you don't believe that trans people are a sep that they are their own thing and that they need to have all the rights and privileges that everybody else has. And if you disagree with that or disagree with any designation about who they are and what their genes have determined them to be, you're a fascist, right? So there are all these defining things. If you don't believe in climate change, you're a fascist. If you, you know, if you call out this idea that a man is a man and a woman is a woman, you're a fascist. If you believe all lives matter, you're a fascist. Um, what else is there? I think it's about it, right? Oh yeah. If you are against the war in Ukraine, you're a fascist. So this is how these things are defined. They, we have these binary definitions. And what it does, it puts people in a box, right? It puts people in the black cube. And they're very adept at this. They're very adept at programming and getting people to be, I'm over, either over here or I'm over here, right? 
And even somebody who is kind of anti the things that I talked about, they might be pro environment, like, man, the water's really fucked up. We got to take care of the water. You know, this idea of using electric uh, cars sounds great, but have you seen the, the pits they leave behind to get the lithium? That's not going to do really well for our, you know, our, our land and our ecology. So some of these people could have different kinds of ideas. They're not just hell bent on raping, pillaging, and plundering the earth, its resources, and the people, which by the way, there are people and groups that are into that. They're into it. And guess what? They have figured out how to program the game so that they don't take the blame. They've got other people to take the blame for that. Pretty smart, pretty sophisticated. So they're scapegoating, right? They're scapegoating people under the umbrella of fascism, uh, white nationalism. Now, if you're black and you're you stand up against, you know, the, the the totalitarian standards, which is what I would call them. You're self-hating. You're a uh, uh, you're a porch Uncle Tom, right? You're coon, and um, you're just you're you're kicked out. You're not really black. You're you're white nationalist on the inside, right? I mean, that's how people are defined. So even if you're black and you grew up with all this fucking struggle and you know, people experiencing real racism at times, right? And moving beyond that, whatever the motivating factor for you as an individual, moving beyond that, and maybe being a, a success, like Jason Whitlock would be a good example. Doesn't matter. The minute you speak out against those defining issues, you are automatically moved into a binary position. Doesn't matter what your color is, doesn't matter what your sex is, none of it matters. All right, so another part of the interview, well, it's the same part of the interview, and they were asking about the culture, besides the fact that it was highly liberal, and they made a decision to go after anything that was outside of their core belief system. I think Zach Voorhees touched on the fact that there were a couple of these programmers that had Asperger's. This is something I've talked about before. And I've been thinking about this whole idea of vaccines as a form of human modification and using specific humans and their modification to do very specific things. And the latest series of vaccines are another iteration of the human modification. The people that don't die, uh, the people that aren't perpetually sick, the offspring of those people, the ones that survive, the black-eyed babies, and even some of the other babies that aren't black-eyed, but might've been genetically altered in some ways. Well, it goes back to the original, I believe, mission around vaccines, which is to genetically modify the human species to create a worker class that was capable of doing something that the people who created the vaccines and, and were part of the script writers for social programming wanted them to do. 
All right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you into an article from a while back. And we're going to get into some of this, uh, some of this Molech stuff, chicken Molech. Hi, I'll have the chicken Molech, please. Okay. So I ran across this uh, piece a while ago, and it was something when I first ran across it, it really stuck in my head. And this is David Mamet, who is the playwright, and he um, wrote uh, Speed the Plow. Um, what else did he write? Um, House of Cards. Um, and uh, his famous one was uh, Coffee is for Closers, right? Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Really good writer. Very, very good writer. Let's, let's read here what, what David Mamet has to say. He says, I think it is not impossible that Asperger's syndrome helped make the movies. The symptoms of this developmental disorder include early precocity, a great ability uh, to maintain masses of information, a lack of ability to mix with groups in age-appropriate ways, ignorance or indifference to social norms, high intelligence and difficulty with transitions, married to a preternatural ability to concentrate on the minutia of the task at hand. All right, just file that away. He says to me, this sounds to me like a job description for a movie director. Let me also note that Asperger's syndrome has its highest prevalence among Ashkenazi Jews and their descendants. For those who have not been paying attention, this group constitutes and has constituted since its earliest days the bulk of America's movie directors and studio heads. Neil Gabler, in his An Empire of Their Own, points out that the men who made the movies, Golden Meyer, Shank, Lamy, Fox, all came from a circle with Warsaw at its center, its radius a mere 200 miles. I will here proudly insert that my four grandparents came from that circle. Widening our circle to all of Eastern European Jewry, the Ashkenazim, we find a list of directors beginning with Joe Sternberg's class and continuing strong through Steven Spielberg's and the youth of today. There was a lot of moosh written in the last two decades about the blank slate, the idea that since each child is theoretically equal under the eyes of the law, each must by extension be equal in all things. And that such a possibility could not obtain unless each child was from birth equally capable environmental influences aside of succeeding in all things. There is a magnificent and majestic theory and would be borne by all save those who'd ever had observed or seriously thought about children. Races as Steven Pinker wrote in his refutational, The Blank Slate, are just rather large families. Families share genes and thus genetic disposition. Such may influence the gene holder or individuals much, some or not all. The possibility exists, however, that a family passing down the gene for great hand-eye coordination is likely to turn out more athletes than without. The family possessing the genes for visual acuity will likely produce good hunters whose skill will provide nourishment. The, family, uh, the families of the good hunters will prosper and intermarry, thus strengthening the genetic disposition in visual acuity. Among the sons of the Ashkenazi families, nothing was more prized than genius at study 
and explication. Prodigious students were identified early and nurtured. The gifted child of the poor was adopted by a rich family, which thus gained status and served the community, the religion, the race. The boys grew and regularly married into the family or extended family of the wealthy. The precocious ate better and thus lived longer. And so were more likely to mate and pass on their genes. These students grew into acclaimed rabbis and Hasidic masters and founded generations of rabbis. The progeny of these rabbinic courts intermarried as does any royalty. And that is my amateur Mendelian explication of the prevalence of Asperger's syndrome in the Ashkenazi. What were the traits indicating the nascent prodigy? Ability to retain and correlate vast amounts of information, a lack or desire or ability for normal social interaction, idiosyncrasy, preternatural ability for immersion and minutia, echo 600 years of Polish rabbis, and 100 of their genetic descendants, American filmmakers. So essentially what David Mamet is saying is that a particular group who has Asperger's as part of their genetic makeup, which kind of, which borders on savantism, right? I mean, I think we used to call people on the spectrum with Asperger's savants, that they would be good, really, really good at one particular thing. And everything else would be sort of, you know, hands in the air, right? So Asperger's is probably a more manageable, like if there was a spectrum and savantism was somewhere uh, just kind of south of Asperger's, right? And not way on the other side of Asperger's, deep Asperger's would be autism and you would have people that would just be really non-functional, but might have some weird kinds of tics and traits, like that would be extreme Asperger's. So somewhere in that, in that spectrum, right? You've got savantism, Asperger's and autism in varying degrees. And I've talked about this before. If you look at people inside the tech world and primarily men, they're on the spectrum, right? They are able to focus on minutia like code or they, they may be obsessed by solving one particular problem like a, an algorithm and they would get paid very, very well, right? Very well. And the thing about, and I'm not gonna to try to lump everybody, every male who's a programmer into that category, but I'm, I'm using sort of a, a wide sample size, right? Those people who are in that world, who do those things, who are rewarded quite well, by the way, many of them do not have this goal to power. Because part of that description is that they do not socialize well. Well, what does that mean? It means that they don't do well in relationships. They certainly don't do well in a marriage, unless, of course, the person that they with is their handler on some level, right? And they understand that this is a person that has a very specific function and things outside of this function, you're just not going to get, right? Which also means that they're probably not going to have children. There's a strong possibility of that, right? Because they're just focused on this one thing. When you get into that model of socialization, for better or worse, let's use the better 
template here or the better uh, model. The idea is that you would get married, you would have a partner, a mate, and that partner and mate would be the person that would support you, right? You'd support each other, support the vision, support the family, you'd have kids, and you would work on building generational wealth, right? Then theoretically, if you have brothers and sisters, they'd be doing the same thing. And if you had good parenting, your good parenting would instruct the brothers and the sisters, like, this is what you do. This is how you do it. This is how you get it done. And if we pull together, we can be very successful, right? That's, that's how it happens, right? And then when you go through that cycle, naturally, you will aspire towards some degree of achievement. Because you want to, you know, if, you're, if it's a family business, well, you want to be the best family business, right? You want to be the best at what you do. You want to, have, you want to make as much money as you can. Theoretically, you want to treat people well, right? All, all that goes into that. It all goes into that. Or if you're at a company and you have that model, what do you want to do? You want to climb the corporate ladder. You want to become, you know, director, vice president, president. I mean, theoretically, that's how the game works, right? And especially when it's built on the family unit, because the family unit theoretically supports that. The higher, the better, the more resources, the more capable. Um, and then it ensures that the gene pool has a better chance of surviving down the line. That's what it's all about. But if you have somebody who's on the spectrum, they're not going to be inclined towards that. What they will be inclined towards is more of what Mamet was talking about. Monofocused, kind of single task, the ability to hold lots of data and focus on the minutia, right? So what do they do? They build the internet. They build the obit. So you have a bunch of people, not all of them, by the way, I'm just, I don't want to say that the entire, um, you know, uh, net world and software world is built on the backs of people with Asperger's. I would say there's a lot of it though. And I believe that this was a conscious and cultivated effort. This is social engineering. This is social engineering. And what's also interesting, right, is that if you have a bunch of kids on the spectrum, whether it's autism or Asperger's, biologically, it connects them to the place and the people where this debilitation, right, if you want to call it a debilitation, came from. A 200-mile circle around Warsaw. So by inoculation, they are baptized, for lack of a better term, into that particular gene pool. So we're talking about genetic modification, right? Genetic modification and genetic modification for a specific reason. So, they, so we have this cadre, and let's just say for the lack of a better term, young men, because, and there were young women with, with um, uh, autism and Asperger's, but not as many seems to impact boys more. And it has to do with those proteins in the stomach, right? You know, looking back on my life, I don't think I have Asperger's. 
because I, I had, I had in a lot of ways had really normal behavior, but I definitely was impacted by vaccines. I can tell you that right now. And when I was young, I had real problems with my stomach, like terrible. Yeah, I know I'm a Virgo, but I would spend hours with these just acute stomach pains, like doubled over. It was hard. It was, it was not easy. And that's one of the things that happens, right? When those spike proteins get into your stomach, it's one of the first things that, that they talk about when, you know, a kid goes into like an autistic mode after he's been vaccinated, he has stomach issues because that's where it all takes place. It goes right into the gut. So what they've done theoretically is they've created this cadre of genetically modified humans. Now you could say that, well, maybe it's just, you know, a roll of the dice or the spin of the wheel. And this is how it all got played out. Or you might be able to make a case that the people who developed these vaccines knew exactly what they were doing, that somehow they were able to study how Asperger's worked. What were the, what were the genetic modifiers for individuals who had Asperger's, which allowed them to perform highly complex and very specific tasks? And why wouldn't they use that same, why wouldn't they create a cocktail that would inoculate the masses so that they could be used in a particular way. And of course, since it's this vast kind of Frankensteinian experiment, you would have people that would not be employable because they'd be far into the deep end of the spectrum, right? They'd have autism and then they'd be, you couldn't do anything with them. But then you would have a certain group that wouldn't be as extreme, that could be employable that could also carry out the next phase of the operation, which is the creation of AI. Right? So when we look at these engineers, when we look at this particular group, they wouldn't have any problem with it because they don't have the same kind of connection with humanity that people outside of that group would have. People outside of that group who may not be as specifically talented or gifted in that one thing or maybe two things, but might have much more, um, I wouldn't use the word agreeable, but much more organic or analog social traits that having a family, starting a family, um, you know, practicing things like discipline, structure, order, you know, work, all those things, right, which would be really high up on the emotional IQ scale, they'd be outside of that. And they would be, right? Now, What's what we're dealing with now is we're dealing with generational inoculation because, you know, I had vaccines. I didn't have as many as, you know, the kids after like 1985 or whatever. And my parents had some, but not many, which is why my mother's still alive, right? You have a lot of people kicking around their 80s because they didn't get vaccinated that much. But what it does, it genetically modifies the individual. So in order for humanity to really recover, we'd have to have at least two or three generations that are vaccine-free. So that by the time, there could always be this potential for the dormant gene that is like kicking around, right? So you may have an aberration or a mutation, which is part of the, part of the genetic experience anyway. But in order for humanity to 
reclaim its analog self, right? We have to have a series of generations without vaccination. And now what's happened since 2020? Well, fuck it, you're gonna get vaccinated. And what they did is they said, okay, we know that people might be pushing back on the vaccine thing because they are. There's a lot of awareness around vaccinations in general. So what we need to do is to create the vaccine that will end all vaccines, meaning we'll go down this path and we'll create the synthetic, the synthetic technologies and then we will use them and then that human will now be completely altered. Like we don't have to keep going back. Although I'm sure they're just fine with going with the DTAP and going with you know all the other poisonous toxins that they put on the schedule. But in case they don't, they've got the ba their bases covered now because again, if you survive, who are you going to be? You know, what are you going to be like, especially if you're a kid? And by the way, they were very clear that they wanted as many fucking kids vaccinated as possible. Like, oh, it's safe. It's safe. Well, why is that? Because they want to genetically modify the children. That's why. And they want to be able to get something out of those kids. And that in and of itself, the whole vaccination process brings us back to Molech. Molech being the god of child sacrifice. So you take your kid in and you, and I'm sorry, I, look, if you vaccinated your child, please don't feel guilty, right? If you have a kid who's on the spectrum, please don't feel, this is not my, this is not my, my attempt to make you feel guilty. Okay. It's not at all. People, I was in the audience one time of vaxxed and they had a showing of vaxxed in, uh, in Austin. And uh, Del Bigtree was there. First time I connected with Del Bigtree. Del Bigtree was there. Um, who else was there? Um, Andrew, what's his name? Is it Andrew Weber? The guy from The Lancet who came up with the, the vaccine and the autism and the, the stomach theory, who basically was pilloried and was forced to change his prognosis around vaccines. So um, the heavy hitters of Vax were there. And I think it might've been Dell or Andrew, one of the two. And the lights came on, right? And that panel and they asked the audience, how many people here have vaccine injured children? And I turned around and I looked it was over half of the audience. And guess what? I'd say 95% of those hands raised were women. These were mothers who were there, who had come to the just absolutely life-shattering conclusion that they were a participant in their child's biological and genetic demise. And that must have been just incredibly hard for them to realize that. The problem is, well, it's not a problem, it's the saving grace in a lot of ways, because the saving grace is that they were just doing the best that they could, right? They thought that they were being good moms because they, they believed the science. And there's a lot of pressure to believe that science, by the way, a lot of pressure. 
either from other parents, other moms, family members, we saw that pressure really get totally cranked up. You know, if that pressure was a four or a five to get your kid vaccinated, I want you to get your kid vaccinated. Are you one of those crazy anti-vax people? Do you believe in uh, Bigfoot too? Do you sleep with a, an aluminum foil hat on? That's what you get. People are like, oh, better get my kid vaccinated. I don't want to have to go through the rigors of you know, fucking interrogation. So they'll do that. And they'll convince themselves that they did it for their kid because somewhere in their head, they think that that's true, right? But they're also doing it so that they don't have to conform to the bullshit. The, well, well, here, they don't have to push against the bullshit and then they, they can conform to the bullshit. It's a tacit agreement. And it's, a, it's, a, it's one that's based on convenience in a lot of ways. Because it's inconvenient to be able to stand in front of somebody and say, yeah, I've done the research. And guess what? My kid doesn't get sick. And they could stand in the face of that and just not let it bother them. Not many people can do that. So what they do is they, they revert to convenience because much more convenient to say, oh, yeah, he's vaxxed. And all of a sudden you're in, right? Now you're in. You're not being socially excluded. This is how the game works. I know it. Trust me. So I have a friend. I don't know if she watches this show or not, but I have a friend who got vaccinated. I haven't seen her in a long time. She got double vaxxed. And the reason she got double vaxxed is because she wanted to travel. It was inconvenient, right? It was inconvenient. Oh, I'm going to be able to go into a store. I don't want my life interrupted. I don't want to have to deal with all the bullshit. So she got, she got jabbed twice. And then she had this kind of blood thing done. I don't know what happened is she paid $2,000. Those other some kind of blood cleanse, blood transfusion. I don't know what, but she did it right after she got vaxxed because she knows about health, right? She knows about alternative health says, well, I'll get vaxxed and I'll use this alternative health method to purge me of the vaccine. Um, I'll have my little papers. Basically, this is my workaround with the system. She's got skin cancer on her legs now. And anybody who's followed the trajectory of these inoculations knows that your chances of getting cancer are astron... They, they are... They are far greater than had you not been vaccinated. Cancers that have been dormant in, in, in remission, right? People that got the shots, guess what? Their cancers came back with a vengeance because the body had lost the ability to fight off the free radicals. And maybe, just maybe, that one shot was designed to fight off one version of one thing. I'm not even convinced of that. But we do know that people's immune systems are breaking down. That's not even the, the whole issue with, you know, heart attacks and the collapses, athletes all around the world dropping like flies. Nobody's fucking talking about it, right? So now she's got a cancer. But it's the convenience. That's what we're talking about here. And I've said this for a long time, that the Antichrist is convenience. It... it Make sure if your life is convenient, and we all love a little convenience, we all love a little easy button every now and then. But if your life is convenience and you just keep 
you know, forking off into convenience, like you are forking off into the Antichrist. Oh, here, isn't this convenient? Oh, yeah. Just go ahead. Let's do it. Make your life easier. Okay. It's coercion through convenience. Now, the inconvenient part is that you have to find a place that will not hassle you or find a job where you don't have to show your papers. That's really fucking inconvenient, isn't it? But that's the price you pay. That is the price you pay. So we have, we have this cadre of kids who have been vaccinated and they have been employed by the tech industry and they are the savants that are building the beast. And it is a perfect plan. And if you don't think that this is eugenically inspired, you may want to rethink that. Because I'm pretty convinced that very little happens by chance. Right? Very little happens by chance. A lot of it happens through some form of advanced planning. Now, every now and then something through chance will occur. And when that happens, people will pounce on that chance and they'll say, how do we, how do we recreate this? Especially if it's in our favor. If they pounce on something by chance that is not in our favor, they will have the dialogue or they'll ask the question, how do we keep this from fucking happening again? Like Donald Trump. Because that, that was a moment of chance, right? That was a big chance moment. And I, I talked about it before. Hillary knew or thought she was going to win. It was a given. No ground game, right? She talked shit about men. The silent majority was not telling any pollsters how they were going to vote. They had no clue. It was like so fucking Sun Tzu on the Trump side. It wasn't even funny. It took advantage of somebody who had a lot of hubris and thought, you know, the powers of be are just going to roll in here and inaugurate me. I don't have to do shit. I can talk shit. And I believe that there are two things that happened. One, there was such a massive wave of Trump votes that they couldn't flip them fast enough. Now, Zach Voorhees in this interview throws out that maybe what happened is that the machines, which were programmed to also help Hillary win, got deprogrammed, that somebody got in and did something to those machines. So you had two things, if you're on the left, that were against you. You had this massive wave of people who had to suffer through eight years of Obama and being told how fucked up they were, right? They're like, fuck you. That's number one. And number two, and this could have been on the defense side, right? Because a lot of people have made mention of the fact that Trump was chosen by the military to run. That didn't work out really well, at least not now. But if that's true, then they probably had access to those machines because the military has very sophisticated technology. And that's what happened. It was a chance. And guess what? We're not going to let it happen again. We're going to do everything in our power to make sure that that one chance, that one variable will never sneak through. Unless, of course, it's in their favor, in which case, hey, let's figure out how we can maximize that thing. Like, that's how, that's how this shit works.
And so now who does Trump have as a son? Baron Trump. And there's talk that he has Asperger's, that he might have some very unique abilities. I wouldn't doubt it. What is it? What is he now? Like six foot nine? By the time he's done growing, Baron Trump will be close to probably 6'10. And he probably can't play a lick of fucking basketball, which is fine. It'll be interesting to see how Baron Trump develops. He might actually be a considerable human. He might be somebody that can impact humanity in a weird way. I would not doubt that about him. 29 degrees Pisces. Anyway, we've got all this Pisces going on, right? All this Pisces. And the most convenient thing is to find somebody who can fix it all, which would certainly look like Elon Musk. He's going to fix it all for us. I have no doubt that Elon Musk could theoretically, you know, play this role of the Antichrist, or at least a partial version of it, because I do believe the Antichrist, the Antichrist is the energy. And the energy can settle into any number of people through agreement. So you could have Zelensky, who could be a version of the Antichrist. You could have Musk, a version of the Antichrist. You could have Jasper, who would be a version of the Antichrist. Think about that. What if the Antichrist like, got really into Jasper? said, I'm going to turn this cat into a vision or a version of myself. That'd be rough. So I was going to get into some of this Moldex stuff, this 420 stuff, but I kind of went on for a long period of time about this thing with mammoth Asperger's, vaccines, consciously, genetically modifying humans. One big giant fucking laboratory experiment. And the ones that are on the spectrum that look like they can be worthy candidates to help us build the perfect beast, we'll take them. Not only will we take them, but we will give them the same treatment that the children who showed these proclivities had when they were young and in Poland, which meant that they got to study with rabbis, eat good food, have a good family. If you look at Google, Google is that, right? You go to Google and you're on the spectrum, you get fed really well. You know, they've got food they bring in every day. You don't have to do anything. You could stay there fucking 14 hours a day. You could put a cot under your little QB. And they'd be just fine with that. You know, Google is the, the, the new rabbinical royalty taking in your Asperger spectrum-based children. Give them to us, right? That's Molech. That is the sacrifice. The sacrifice of Molech happens at the prick of a needle. All right, I want to play some music and I'm going to get out of here. I've been, uh, oh, it's the wrong, it's the wrong YouTube. That is the wrong damn YouTube. I've been saving these tracks. What do I have? I got four minutes left. So I need to find a song. That's less than four minutes.
All right, where's my history? Purchases, memberships, I'll get to my fucking playlist. Go to my channel status. Here we go. All right, playlists. I don't want that. I want saved. Settings, content, copyright, monetization. All right. Where's my save shit? All right, I'm running out of time here. I got three minutes. Um, let me go back in here. Thanks for being here. I appreciate you. Where's my playlist stuff? All right, I'm just going to get out of here. I'll play a song tomorrow. We'll have Chris on tomorrow. Christopher Lynch, he'll tell, he'll tell us <clears throat> all about his brave struggle against cancel culture. To just get a niche, a niche in the side of the cliff face to build a business with ethics, quality, and service. Use your head in order to discern what's real, your heart to stay open what's possible. I'm Robert Phoenix. Take care. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye for now.